Hey folks, this is Wes Colton with the Introvert Unbound podcast. For this episode, we have Arthur Lieber on. He is the author of Political Introverts, How Empathetic Voters Can Help Save American Politics. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Wes, happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, this is an intriguing topic for me. We don't talk a lot about politics at Introvert Unbound, but we're not opposed to it. And of course, this cross section with introversion, it was just fascinating to me when I heard about it. So I'm really psyched to have you. And I guess the first question I'd have for you is, where did this all come from? Well, uh, I ran for Congress twice, once in 2010, uh, again in 2014. And I really felt like a fish out of water, but I wanted to be there. I, you know, have have strong beliefs about our political system and about trying to improve our society. But, um, you know, the idea of um, loud campaigning was something that I've always abhorred personally, being on the receiving end of it. And I certainly didn't want to do that. And um, I lost both my races in a, a highly Republican district. I ran as a Democrat, although it may switch uh, this year. But uh, I became more and more aware of the fact that uh, politics is so oriented towards extroverts Mm. uh, in terms of being loud and bragging um, and not giving people time to think and to reflect. And uh, as I became aware in the 2016 election that that 40% of people who'd be eligible to vote did not. Uh, I wanted to find out more about that 40% and Mm. see how many of them might be introverts. And I found that it was quite a few Mm. and then explore, you know, why it is that uh, many introverts don't like to vote and perhaps how the political process could change to make it more inviting for introverts. That's really fascinating. So you yourself have firsthand firsthand experience of being a part of the political system or at least attempting to be. And so it rubbed you the wrong way, would you say, just in terms of having to be what on all the time? What was the most difficult? Exactly. Thing? I mean, you, you know, we're, we're all, I think, familiar with the idea of recharging our batteries. And, um, you know, I remember particularly in 2010 when the district was a little different and a little more widespread and I'd go out to places an hour away and, and I just couldn't wait for them to be over with. Then when I'd have the car ride home, it's like I would be relaxing and I'd be recharging and just wondering, does anybody else in politics do this? I would always leave events early, as early as I could, and other people would hang around. And I knew that I was doing something that was counterproductive to trying to win. But on the other hand, I was doing something that was, you know, in some way trying to uh, maintain my identity, my sanity. Right. Understand. So would you say that there are any advantages in terms of a person running for office uh, who happens to be an introvert? I know that's not necessarily just what your book is about, but since we're on the topic, we, we know that there are drawbacks, right? Obviously, the fact yeah. that not being as glib and being able to just spout endlessly and just have all of that energy to be out there and glad handing everyone. But there's got to be some some plus sides to being an introvert in politics, right? Oh, I, I think there is. I mean, I think that you tend to be more reflective. You tend to uh, focus more on the issues. Mm. You tend to um, really try to look to solutions uh, to problems. And, um, you know, because your mind isn't so 
geared into rah-rah campaigning, you know, if, if you are interested in politics, you're going to focus more on um, ideally, you know, what the country needs and what you can do to try to be part of those solutions. That makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, in my mind, it seems like introverts would be naturally actually better at governing, but maybe not as good at campaigning. <laughs> well, I know I was not good at campaigning. And, um, and, and you know, I refused to take contributions. And some people might say, well, that was really noble of you. And I would say, no, I mean, you know, I just hated the whole idea of asking people for money. So it didn't require any special skills on my part not to ask for money. But... Mm -hmm. Um, I think that uh, there probably are very few introverts who like the idea of asking anybody for money, um, at least doing it, you know, on a personal basis. Yeah, it's basically being a salesperson, and that is pretty much the number one job that introverts tend to detest. Exactly. Uh, and, and politics, in many ways, is sales, and I don't think that brings us good government. Right, right. Do you think maybe the fact that the Internet is in existence and so prevalent that that might help politicians in that it's not just about their speeches. They can communicate in other ways, like, <laughs> like, like well. Twitter yeah. for better, or for worse. <laughs> I, I, I am anti Twitter, but I think that the fact that you have the internet and you have all these means by which you can um, share ideas and you can have give and take just as we're doing right now. Um, so much the better. And uh, you know, Right now, we're seeing campaigns where so much of it is, you know, how visible can I be? Elizabeth Warren, for whom I have a lot of respect, but my goodness, you know, what is she doing? She's counting how many selfies she has, and that's, mm -hmm. you know, above 60,000 now. Mm -hmm. You know, and two questions. One, you know, how many introverts would even want to be in that selfie? <laughs> and two is, what the hell does that have to do with governing? Those are very good questions. Yeah, it's a good point. Can you name any politicians over the ages you'd say that might have been introverts? Um, that's, I mean, I can, the person I think of first actually is a former Supreme Court Justice, David Souter. Hmm. He was very from New Hampshire. He was, um, you know, very reserved. Um, but I, you know, I, I should have thought about this. I don't have an answer that's right funny. now. Now, um, I, I may think of one later on, but it, it's hard to do that. Yeah, well, because I agree. I think the vast majority of them tend to be extroverted personalities. I would argue, and maybe this is up in the air, but I would argue that Obama may have been a bit of an introvert. I think you're right. I think <laughs> absolutely. And I've heard same thing said about Colin Powell, though he mm -hmm. didn't run for office. Yeah, yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, they're kind of. They're a little bit more soft-spoken. It doesn't mean that they can't speak when they need to. Obama had that way of ruminating, and he'd kind of speak a little bit slower because he was doing that deeper processing opposed to you know some other politicians that we could speak of. So <laughs> it, it's, it clearly does not disqualify one from no, anything like that. I mean, he was, you know, I, I just overlooked him, and I think you're absolutely right. And I think... It's interesting, you know, that he's been to a large extent invisible uh, since he left the presidency, and that could well be reflective of recharging his batteries. Yeah, that's just his true nature. He's done with it, and he wants to be out of the public eye. And yeah, I mean, if you're president for eight years, that's going to drain your battery for a while. Absolutely. 
Well, let's uh, switch a little bit. So instead of talking about actually folks who are running for office, let's talk about just engagement in the political system, because uh, you're suggesting that in your book that it's just a bit of a turnoff in general to introverts. So could you speak a little bit more to that? Well, uh, you know, Susan Cain wrote about the quiet revolution, and I think uh, quiet is just something that is not normally part of, of politics as mm. we see it. Um, and I think there, one of the things that I found in, in the research that we did was that it wasn't just <clears throat> a matter of the noise why uh, some introverts didn't want to be part of the political process. It also, a lot of it is, is because the whole um, political system is so confusing. Mm. Um, you have to be somewhat interested in politics and, and wanting to figure out how things work if you're going to accept the Electoral College. I found with a number of introverts or other non-voters that they just really disliked the idea of the Electoral College. You found it confusing and mm. it was a reason to say, you know what, I'm not going to worry about voting. Mm -hmm. But I think there are a lot of other uh, issues in the way we do politics that also would be turn off. And these would include uh, gerrymandering, uh, voter suppression, uh, the system by which we have uh, primaries. Uh, the, the Iowa caucuses just recently are obviously uh, a, a, you know, such a clear example of how we do politics in ways that are incredibly confusing, not only to people on the outside, but with Iowa, certainly to people on the inside. So, um, you know, I, I think most introverts would prefer to have a system which they can understand, which they can mm -hmm. feel comfortable with, and which they can negotiate with their own preferences. So how would you say that introverts' inclination to be more thoughtful and reflective maybe taking a deeper look at things than, you know, the typical extrovert, you know, to make generalizations, obviously it's not the case all right. the time, but frequently so. So how can that help in terms of, you know, say voting in general? How would that change things? It, 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 let me make sure I understand. Yeah. If, uh, if it was easier for introverts or? Well, just the, let's just say it was all introverts who voted. Let's just okay. you know, create yeah. this imaginary situation. Okay. The thoughtfulness that tends to be a part of the whole introvert personality. How could that, how would that potentially change just who gets elected? What, you know, policies pass in terms of referendum or referenda okay. in yeah. states, stuff like that. I think that critical thinking and empathy tend to go hand in hand. So if you're talking about thoughtful people, I, I think you're talking about people who are looking for ways to, to try to solve problems. Mm -hmm. And if you um, if empathy is part of the process that you employ, then I think if you had primarily introverts in the electorate, um, you would find that we would focus much more on you know, whether it's dealing with the infrastructure or social services or uh, health care for everyone or dealing with education, college loans, whatever it might be, mm -hmm. that um, we <clears throat> would be able to do it much better because there wouldn't be a lot of yelling, screaming, insults. You know, instead, we'd be trying to help one another. That makes a lot of sense. And so you brought up the empathetic thing, which I was definitely going to get to. So tell me about how that all ties into this in your mind 
Well, I, I think that um, there are a couple of recent writers who have, have had a, a pretty strong effect on me, one writing about Republicans and the other about Democrats, and that'll get us into the empathy thing. Hmm. There's a fellow by the name of Chris Mooney. He's an environmental reporter for the Washington Post. And back in uh, 2012, he wrote a book called The Republican Brain, um, seeing how Republicans think as being you know, quite different from people who are not Republicans. Right. Prior to that, he wrote a book about the Republican war on science. And so uh, his notion is, is, is that Republicans tend to be less likely to be critical thinkers, um, and they jump to conclusions, they can be fooled, they, they, they will buy into fake news, um, and uh, there just isn't that same degree of empathy. Mm. The other author who I was going to talk about, his name is Thomas Frank, um, and he wrote a book called What's the Matter with Kansas? And his main point in there was th that um, so many people um, are not really advocating for their economic well-being. Instead, they're uh, pushing ahead with their own social values. You know, mm -hmm. it might be, um, you know, right to life, whatever it might be, but they're not really advocating for their uh, economic well-being. But then Thomas Frank wrote another book called Listen Liberal, in which he really took liberals to task because he sees so many liberals as people who, um, you know, love to be part of the cocktail circuit and um, they try to protect their professions, but they don't necessarily try to protect the people who traditionally have been protected by the Democratic Party. We're talking about blue-collar workers, minorities, women, whatever. And, you know, to me, um, with all the problems in the Democratic Party, it still seems that Democrats have a, a greater degree of empathy and value that and want to preserve it. Right, right. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. So <clears throat> what's your general background in terms of not just politics, but you know your experience of being an introvert in the world and then we can get back more into some of the other components but just to hear a little bit more about you as a person well i, I think that uh, perhaps like uh, other introverts you know when i was young i, I still felt in, in a lot of ways that um there was something some way in which i wasn't connecting some way in which i wasn't fitting in and you know i didn't know what it was and i you know here I am now, and I'm looking um, at the webpage, um, um, you know, and actually about you, and you talk about uh, chronic depression and social anxiety, and I've experienced those as well. And really, for me, it, it meant a lot when the term introversion became more part of the public conversation, because it's an easy default to say, you know, I'm depressed, I'm anxious, whatever, um, and blame oneself. And I think that if you um, think in terms of introversion, it's a no-fault status mm. and um, gives one more understanding of oneself. So I think for me personally, it's been a, a long effort, ups and downs, um, to try to accept who I am and to, um, you know, not beat up on myself. I think uh, the older I get, actually, the easier it's gotten. And um, so I'm glad I'm getting older. <laughs> yeah, we tend to accept ourselves more. And it's that whole thing between self-help and self-love. It's like we want to work on aspects of ourselves. But we also have to accept ourselves at the same time. It's uh, exactly. that paradox there. So did you find that your desire to run for political office, so 
to become a leader in a sense. Did you find that that transformed you at all? Or is that something that you've always taken on leadership roles? Um, I have had uh, leadership roles to, to a fairly significant extent. Um, when I was 27 years old with my first wife, we started a school here in St. Louis, a school that is still going well. And, you know, all right. And, and that's another big part of the book is, is reforming schools. But right. again, the idea was to make schools more empathetic and to, uh, um, you know, really reduce the amount of pressure under which students live. So, um, but 15 years of doing that, and I'll tell you, it got to me, um, the stress of that and the fact, uh, at one point I was director of the school with 200 students and teaching five classes. And that certainly did not provide me with a proper time to chill to recharge my batteries. And so, you know, I just had to break from that uh, after 15 years doing that. Mm -hmm. um, and since then, been operating a nonprofit, which is much less pressure um, and uh, in some ways more fulfilling because there's more opportunity to recharge. For sure. But I do think personally, leadership is really important for introverts. And a lot of the reason behind our website, Introvert Unbound, is to encourage more folks to develop the skills to put themselves out there because like you believe, I believe that the world needs more introverts, um, you know, from politics to just general social life across the board. And so anything that encourages people to kind of put themselves out there a little more and, and work on some of those skills, I think is a, a wonderful thing. Uh, what what was your experience? So when you were running for office, we talked a little bit about that. But in terms of what were some of the biggest things that you had to improve upon to make it a go of it so basically you're saying all right there are certain things i just i wasn't going to do and i was fine with that but you probably did have to polish certain skills right yeah i, I mean certainly my public speaking and hmm. uh learning more about um you know how to work within time limits hmm. um learning how to read an audience uh i i do remember um you know, with one of the first appearances I had, it was um, in June and it was uh, just a beautiful night picnic area. And uh, but it was, you know, kind of a rural area. And I felt really good being there because it was so pastoral. Hmm. But I could not connect with a soul there. There must have been about 100 people there. Yeah, yeah. And my politics were so different from theirs. And um, there were, I think, 23 candidates there, hmm. of whom 18 were Republicans and five were Democrats, and the other four Democrats wouldn't go anywhere close to where I was. Okay. And so it, you know, uh, I ultimately learned how to read the audience, but um, that part, you know, was quite frustrating. But then again, it, you know, kind of redoubled my my interest in in politics and trying to find ways to reach out to people who um in many ways i don't think we're thinking empathetically about um people who are getting the short end of the stick yeah that's really interesting so on your website uh, politicalintroverts.com which is also where you can buy the book i see a post called the quiet candidate andrew yang so he is i believe <laughs> officially out of the race now yeah. i'm pretty sure <clears throat> but uh you know, maybe do you want to just rephrase a little bit of what you say in that piece? Because I think it's kind of interesting. Um, yeah, I'm going to uh, pull that one back up just yeah, real quick. Of course. Yeah. Um, 
I, I, I think that um, Andrew Yang reminds me, and I, was, I don't know if you remember a fellow by the name of Dennis Kucinich, yes. he used to be a congressman from Ohio. Uh-huh. Okay. And back in 2008, he was really a lone wolf because he was talking about this thing called Medicare for All. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was on a stage with the likes of Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. And whenever he would bring it up, they wouldn't say a word. Um, none of the moderators in any of the debates would either. And so it was like he was talking about something that nobody wanted to hear about. Yes. Well, here we go um, now, 2000. Uh, 20 and we have andrew yang who in my mind is talking about things that none of the other candidates picked up on this year Mm -hmm. talking about artificial intelligence talking about robotics um talking about uh guaranteed income and i have this sense that just the way when dennis kucinich was talking about medicare for all and nobody was listening and now everyone's listening that with andrew yang and his quiet approach Mm -hmm. because you know you never hear would hear him yelling and screaming on the stage but i think he resonated with a lot of people particularly young people and uh i i think that in coming elections um he personally and what he has to say will really be much more uh, front and center yeah you may be right do you think he was a political introvert or is a political introvert um I don't know. I mean, I, I, I recently read his book and he travels all over the place and he obviously um, enjoys talking with uh, investors and inventors and so forth. Um, he strikes me personally when I see him as somewhat introverted in the sense that he would stop and he would uh, talk calmly with you. But um, right. I don't know how much recharging time he needs. Right. Yeah. I mean, it can be deceptive because most people don't think that I'm introverted at all because I can talk forever if it's on a particular topic and I'm interested in it and I'm interested in talking to the person. Um, You know, I get drained in a lot of other situations, but uh, that's mostly because I learned how to manage my battery and I also know how to kind of steer a conversation in a direction where it keeps me energized. So people think all the time that I'm an extrovert. They don't believe me. I'm like, no, I spend most days by myself. (laughs) I go on a weekly hike where I go out of my way not to see anyone for a full day, you know, a week. So, um, so it's hard to say, but I do agree that a lot of his kind of, you know, more chill mannerisms and the fact that, you know, he is definitely a a thoughtful individual. Um, I'm definitely not endorsing anyone. I'm more interested in talking about him because he's already out of the race and it's sort of safe. But he, what I was impressed by him, and this may or may not have something to do with his reflective capacity and, you know, political introversion, was the fact that he really did reach across a lot of, uh, not just political aisles, but, you know, he would go on certain podcasts and stuff like that that were considered to be untouchable by the other side, you know, stuff that, you know, basically just conservative stuff for people who, you know, would maybe talk a little bit of shit. But he was like, you know what, I'm going to go on it and I'm going to talk to these people and maybe I'll disagree with them 90 percent, but I'm still going to engage. And I really appreciated that approach because uh, not a lot of candidates do that. I, I agree with you completely. And I thought, you know, one of the worst steps that happened in this campaign was when the uh, uh, before the candidates even announced when the Democratic National Committee said they didn't want to have any uh, debates on Fox. I mean, why is it that you don't want to reach out to people who might not be your natural audience? Um, why do you have to polarize? things? And I think, as you were saying, Andrew Yang is somebody who doesn't do that. And maybe that's 
in part because he's thinking so much to the future mm. that he really doesn't want to waste time, you know, throwing brickbats back and forth. Right. Well, my hope is that the reason he had to drop out is not necessarily because of introverted tendencies. But I mean, there is a certain reality we have to accept that to a certain degree, yeah, extroversion can be very appealing to a lot of people. Um, when I work with folks on dating issues, I don't lie to them and say, hey, you know, you standing there smokily in the corner is going to be more appealing than, you know, the loud guy who gets the women's attention. It, it's it's not. Um, it, yeah. It's it's the squeaky wheel does get the grease. So is there a way if you had any advice for somebody who would be running for office who happens to be uh, an introvert or even any form of leadership? What what would you recommend for them? I, I really think to stay within your limits mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, even if you want to do it in a very quiet way, it's still going to require a lot of time, a lot of energy. Right. And um, it is if you've got a message that you value, then obviously you want other people to hear it. Mm -hmm. um, so things like podcasts are, are you know, uh, much easier to do than, you know, personal live appearances. And I think you, you just have to look for ways in which you can reach people um, and still feel like, um, you know, your day is not being terribly stressful. I think that as time goes on, that's going to become more and more easy. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll all benefit from that. For sure. So I see also on the website talking a bit about the book, which, again, is Political Introverts, How Empathetic Voters Can Help Save American Politics. You mentioned the schools thing, and you did mention that earlier. Do you mm -hmm. want to talk a little bit about that as personally as somebody who was technically a good student um, but just <laughs> detested everything about school, and so I got in trouble all the time? <laughs> <laughs> well, I you know, having taught a lot, I love rebels, you know, and, and uh, I, to me, if you're talking about critical thinking, it makes a lot of sense to, uh, can I say the BS word? Yes. Yeah, to not want to put up with a lot of bullshit that schools have, and, and that, you know, schools are, in my mind, are like any other institution. Their main goal is to preserve themselves, mm -hmm. um, and you know what that means is, is that we've got a lot of rules that are designed to to keep those who are in power to allow them to stay in power and i don't think that has a whole lot to do with um making comforting learning environment for students and i think that um you know sometimes students really uh what they need more than anything are teachers who are empathetic mm -hmm. and who will understand when they're having a good day or a bad day. Students are going to, I know when, you know, you, you referenced when you were a student and I know when I was a student, I'd be curious what you thought about it, but the, the teachers I always learned the most from were the ones who respected me the most, who had a good sense of humor, right. um, you know, and who were supportive. Um, if, if I had a teacher who I really didn't like, I would shut down. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to have teachers who, who students can relate to. And I'm curious, you know, if that's something that resonates with you as well. Oh, I, I think that's definitely true. Uh, I There were not a lot of those teachers, unfortunately, for me that I really did relate to or got along with, really. But the ones that I did, I I still remember to, these day, to this day. Um, yeah. W what do you think? I'm curious about what do you think about in terms of the fact that things might be getting easier for students 
if they're introverts these days because there is a little bit better understanding of what that even is. When I went to school and very likely when you went to school, they didn't really even know what that meant. No, and uh, you know, I, I've been teaching for close to 50 years and, and I really take myself to task because I think for most of these years, I really wasn't aware of the term introvert. Mm -hmm. And so much of uh, you know contemporary education philosophy has been, well, we need to bring the kids out. We need to get them to work in groups and everybody's an equal participant. Right. And that you know just doesn't isn't comfortable for a lot of introverts. So I find myself still having opportunities to teach and, and trying to make up for lost time and, and trying to really be respectful um, to those students who clearly are introverts. Yeah, I think that's a great thing. On the other hand, it's kind of a good thing sometimes to have your comfort zone pushed, right? So, Absolutely. like, a win, yeah. Yeah, so it's a little a bit of both. So it's realizing when the student is having to do that. So it's like, okay, we know this is not Johnny's strong suit here, but guess what? Once in a while, it is good for Johnny to have to get up in front of the class and say stuff or work in these groups as opposed to working alone. But then realizing, okay, maybe the grading should be looked at a little differently. This is not what he's great at, and maybe we shouldn't be judging him as harshly when he's working in those groups because that's just not his natural inclination. I'm sure you can't really factor every single component into it every time you're grading or anything like that, but have you thought about times in which it's worthwhile to coddle and times in which it's like, hey, this is just something you got to learn someday? Absolutely. You know, if there are words to live by, I, I remember, you know, a character who was on the old TV show, NYPD Blue, mm -hmm. um, Bobby Simone, just said a simple line, he said, everything's a situation. Mm -hmm. And I really believe those are words to live by because, you know, you really have to think on your feet and get a reading. When you're teaching, you've got to get a reading of um, where each individual kid is and where the group is. And uh, sometimes you get it right, and sometimes you mess it up, and and uh, you know you really have to work hard at trying to uh, to learn from your mistakes. And I think the same thing applies um, to politics, more so to governance, mm -hmm. where um, if you can acknowledge when you mess something up, because none of these are easy calls. I mean, if you're if you're uh, teaching before a class, and um, you say something that somehow struck a kid the wrong way you're going to spend a lot of time trying to make up for that. Yeah. Uh, at least hopefully you will rather than uh, resting on your own laurels. And I think that um, in government, you know, people have to acknowledge, you know, I tried, but it didn't work. So let's go back to the drawing board. That's that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. For me, school was just too damn long. So my <laughs> yeah. battery ran out and it's like, I'm still oh, I'm still here. So that's why uh, so I think <laughs> I think the best thing you can do for introverted students is shorten the school day. But parents are not going to be a fan of that. So I you know the best part of being the director of a school, which I was for fifteen years, was snow days. Yeah, all chill. Yeah, snow days are the best. Yeah, and day. you're not supposed to like it if you're running the school. You know, you're supposed <laughs> to be that figure that says, "Oh, what we're doing is so important, you can't afford to miss it." No, you know, and and you know, I think. Those are the days when kids, in many ways, are learning a lot more. I know I did mm -hmm. as a student when I didn't have school um, and I had time to read on my own or, right. uh, you know, just think creatively, learned a lot more. Yeah, maybe some more downtime just at school is a, yeah. you know, that could that could help. For me, I guess it was almost like I remember when I would go to new classes or new, new schools because I moved around to different schools and stuff like that. 
partially because I just didn't feel like I belonged. I moved around, I guess, three schools, but that was because I graduated from a, a private school, the day school, so I had to go to a junior high and then, you know, junior high to high school and then a high school, a different high school. But for me, I used to get really nervous during lunch because that was the time when I had to socialize, whereas if I could just sort of sit in my desk and dream, it wasn't so bad. <laughs> so downtime, I guess, means different things for different there's people. There's a, a book out now, you know, why do all the black kids eat alone at lunch, something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And and uh, I remember, you know, at our school crossroads, um, uh, as a faculty, we frequently talked about that. And it took us so long to figure out who were we to engage in this kind of social engineering. You know, mm -hmm. lunch is a tense time. Let kids be with who they want to be with. Right. It, it's not for us to, and, and that means, as you're saying, they're going to be kids who just you know, want to be in a classroom by themselves or they might want to uh, just be outside or whatever. But, um, you know, I think we're learning more and more about how people tick. And, and to me, the term introvert um, means so much. It's liberating. It reminds me, I have a, a brother with special needs mm -hmm. and strong, you know, they use the R word, the, the retarded word. And right. he knew, everybody knew, you know, how offensive that word was. Mm -hmm. And about 20 years ago, when the term Asperger's came into vogue, it was so liberating for him. It was like no fault difference. Mm -hmm. You know, I am mm -hmm. different, and there are things that might be problematic about it, and there are things which are terrific about it. Right. And I think the term introvert instead of depressed or anxious is liberating. And I think um, we need to embrace that and, and need to educate others about it. And I think the work you're doing and others is, is so vital to this. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. And yeah, I definitely think that's true. I mean, to me, introvert is kind of a big tent. And you know, you can be yeah. an introvert your whole life and never be depressed and never have anxiety, but it does often tend to overlap and maybe not in a clinical sense, but just because you end up feeling a little bit more alienated and isolated. Um, you know, and of course, there's plenty of people with depression and anxiety who are total extroverts and stuff like that. But right. I, I see it all as part of that big tent and the welcoming big tent is introvert. You know, it's just we have a different way of relating. We in many ways have a lot of the same skills. Uh, maybe they're not the exact symmetrical skills kind of thing, but we we have so much to offer and it's really about understanding ourselves. And I do think the world is understanding us a little bit better. It's kind of it's almost a cool thing to be like, oh, yeah, I'm an introvert. There, there is something that I call the introvert crutch, which is when we use it to just be avoidant. And I don't think that's yeah. great either. But that's that's better than being, you know, forced into a box. So I, I, I would take that um, as a writer myself who who does. I write fiction as well. And I've been a journalist. I do lots of different writing. But I'm curious and maybe other people wouldn't be as <laughs> interested. But I don't care. It's my podcast. <laughs> Talk a little bit about the process of writing the book, if you wouldn't mind. Um, this is the third book I've written, and this Great. one I really had trouble getting my uh, ideas together. And uh, I reached out. I was able to uh, uh, find an editing company in Chicago, uh, uh, Sarah Cannell Coaching. And I went up last March and, and met with a couple of their staff people and for three hours just brainstormed the ideas that I had. And they really helped me a great deal in terms of um, organizing it, putting it into a, about uh, 10 chapters and having some sequencing to it. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the what I 
the first book I wrote was about the first campaign that I had, and it was more, you know, of a narrative, and it was uh, more chronological, and and that was easier to write. But um, yeah, this is the first time for me in writing where I just for for several months I just uh, couldn't get it going, and um, I'm glad that I was willing to reach out to others. And once we did that, then. It really flowed smoothly, and they, they helped me considerably in terms of, uh, you know, sharpening my language and, and just making it flow more smoothly. For sure. Yeah, so this was a tricky book. I mean, it's a tricky subject, and you mm -hmm. are bringing two what people would call disparate topics together. So, I mean, that's no easy feat. Right, right. And, um, you know, it, it, as I went along, it, it became fairly clear to me that there were three main points, you know, that I wanted to make. One, about making politics more comfortable, welcoming for introverts, two, about reforming our schools, and three, reforming the political process. But it, it, I am very, th and, and my wife has been terrific to talk with, and, and um, you know, summer interns that we had with our nonprofit last, last summer, just uh, great for just kind of refining my ideas. That's excellent. Well, how about the sitting down and writing process itself as an introvert? Is that, is that something you enjoy doing? Do you dread it? Um, I think I have mixed feelings about it. Yeah, I mean, we all do as writers. Yeah. I mean, in many ways, I mean, I, uh, uh, you know, it's very comforting and, it, and it's me and, and I like doing that. But, um, you know, I guess I can't get out of my mind the way I felt when I was writing assignments in school or whatever. You know, I, mm -hmm. I, I'm kind of looking forward to the time to go to the refrigerator or <laughs> to, you know, just back off, read something on my own, watch TV, take a walk whatever. So, you know, I'm, I'm never in it so much that I, I say to myself, gee, this is what I want to do the rest of my day every yeah. day. I, I, I need to back off. Yeah, what I often say is it's not necessarily that I love writing. It's I love having written. Yes. Oh, I, I think that really uh, I'll, I'll have to borrow that line. from you. <laughs> yeah. Well, so where else can folks pick up your book? So on your website, politicalintroverts.com, where where should people go to find out well, more? Well, the, the uh, only two um, national retailers at this point are Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're uh, getting it into some of the local bookstores here in St. Louis and um, hope to get wider distribution. And, um, you know, I, in some ways I wish I was doing this 30 years ago when – uh, independent bookstores were more the norm and, and um, you know, we'd be supporting those kind of enterprises. But um, I guess for every penny I make, uh, Jeff Bezos makes a couple more. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the landscape these days. I recently uh, published a book as well. And yeah, you got to go through those conduits, uh, all the above, yeah. if you can. Any other uh, platforms that social media stuff if people want to connect with you how could people do that through your website uh, I, I, I have the website and there's a political introverts page on uh, on facebook okay excellent and any last words last advice for our introverted audience <laughs> i would say um we have a lot of thoughts that are incredibly valuable and politics is a good way to change the world i, I mean i the more I've become familiar with people who, who uh, study those who are introverts and who, who advocate, I have this concern that many people kind of want to make it a very protective movement to protect introverts because we all do feel vulnerable. Mm -hmm. But 
if we forget about the common good, if we forget about making society kinder and gentler, then the world is going to be harsh, harsher than it has to be. And we as introverts have, I think, more in the way of sensitivity and empathy, understanding, problem-solving solutions than a lot of other people have. And even though it can be difficult, and we're somewhat at times a fish out of water trying to engage in the political process, I think we have so much to offer. And, you know, it's to our benefit as much as anybody else's. Because, you know, if we have a society in which, you know, there are basic human rights, which are uh, given like healthcare and education and, and housing and food, um, it's going to, uh, you know, I, I think introverts will not find the world to be as forbidding as, as some do, at least those who are, um, you know, really don't have the full measure of rights that they deserve. Mm -hmm. well, I think that makes a lot of sense. Well, that was Arthur Lieber, author of Political Introverts, How Empathetic Voters Can Help Save American Politics, which you can find on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Check out his website, politicalintroverts.com, and on Facebook. So thanks again, Arthur. Wes, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Um, truly enlightening, enriching to talk to you. Great. You take care. You too. Thanks. Hey folks, this is Wes Colton, coach, CEO, and founder of Introvert Unbound. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and got something out of it, and I hope you stay tuned for future episodes by subscribing on Podbean, iTunes, or however else you found us. If you yourself are an introvert and resonate with our message, I also recommend you go to introvertunbound.com and sign up for our free monthly email newsletter with our latest articles, videos, and other introvert-related stuff. And if you're really looking to level up your dating, social, and work life, email me at introvertunbound at gmail.com for your free half-hour, zero-obligation online console to help you come up with a game plan to harness your strengths, shore up your weaknesses, and become the Introvert Unbound.